I'm a time lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Castelbrus. I hope the ears are a bit less conspicuous this time. You might be a doctor, but I am. I'm a doctor. That's probably not the one you expect. Absolutely fantastic. All of time and space, everything that ever happened or ever will. Where do you want to start? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bigger on the Inside, the new Who Doctor Who Watch Along podcast. Uh, there's a lot of news this week, isn't there, Tim? It's full of news and full of techie problems that I'm sure we won't be baffled by in the slightest. Aye, aye, absolutely. So, um, we usually do our introductions, but uh, there's just so much to get through. I think we're just going to jump straight into it. Uh, before the uh, yes. big thing, um, we have <laughs> some news uh, from uh, former Dr. Peter Capaldi. Um, he's Hooray! Done a, he's done a very in-depth interview, um, <laughs> kind of to promote the Suicide Squad, and he makes some interesting observations, kind of comparing the experience of Doctor Who to Suicide Squad, which really he thinks is very, very different. And he also makes some comments about um, Jodie leaving and also um, when he took over from Matt. Yeah, cool. What does he say about... I saw the Suicide Squad, so I'll um, I'll talk about it in a little bit. But um, what's, what's PC got to say for himself? Right, I'll just find... Talk about the character that he played, the thinker. Um... He said that um, when it came to the role, um, generally, I can't find the exact quote right now, um, but that, in a sense, it felt like going from the Doctor to playing the Thinker, he was very much kind of returning to a role that was much more himself, similar to Malcolm Tucker um, from uh, The Thick of It. Um, Oh, that's interesting. So he found... Because the last sort of big role he did, really, I know he's done theatre and stuff, but since, like, Doctor Who, this is, like, his next big thing, really, I guess. Mm. And, uh, I, I literally, I say, I speak to you now whilst looking at this photograph of me and Peter Capaldi. It's, it's quite it's quite disturbing to see him looking back at us as we, as we talk about him. But um, I like that he... Um, that it's one of those things that when he's talking about it, Peter especially seems very open about it, and he talks about his time very openly. Whereas I feel some past actors are maybe slightly defensive about it and make sure they only speak of the positive side of it. Whereas Peter's quite open, even when he was leaving. I remember he was on the Graham Norton show and saying it takes up a lot of time yeah, <laughs> being Doctor Who. It's interesting. He kind of said that playing the Doctor, he felt like during his tenure, he had to almost become a different person. And that, yeah. and he was kind of he felt really felt the responsibility, and I guess this came from him being a fan of the show as well. But that being a um, fan of the show, he understood what a big role it was, and he felt this responsibility, kind of being a figurehead for the show, and that he found it much easier being able to playing the thinker, just who's he was able to relax into it, and also he was part of an ensemble, so it wasn't all kind of riding on him as kind of this yeah. leading man. Yeah, no one's out there going. I'm gonna be just like the thinker. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a giant starfish. That's what I'm gonna do. So yeah, I get that. I always, I always think that must be something of a burden, maybe slightly, when you get cast in one of these big roles like Doctor Who or 
or a Marvel thing. You know, there's so much. I don't. I don't want to say baggage, but I will say extracurriculum that comes with these roles. It's not just turning up, saying your lines. You've got to do the press stuff. You've got to do the conventions. You've got to do the book signings. You've got to do the kids charities. You know, you've got to do all that stuff. Yeah. And I feel that must eat in a lot of your time. Like, when you say someone's being cast as Dot 2, that's not all they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of... I mean, he actually says that he finds it very interesting that kind of James Gunn... He actually doesn't think James Gunn, despite casting both himself and this in Karen Gill and Guards and Galaxy, he doesn't think he's actually seen Doctor Who. <laughs> I don't know. I like... I'm trying to think if he, if he's ever if I've ever heard him mention it. I don't think he has. Well, the thing is, he said. That, I mean, um, he, I mean, he must know what it is, and he must have seen Peter as Doctor Who to to have some reference point. Like, you can't possibly go, "Oh yeah, well, cast Peter Capaldi as the Thinker. What's he done?" And Google his name and go, and not come across Doctor Who. I mean, it's the first line of his obituary. Well, actually, it's interesting because um, Peter says that the reason James cast him is because he saw the. Um, the Figfit film in the loop, and he really liked Capaldi's yeah. performance in that. He's not sure if James even saw the thick of it. He just saw it in the loop and <laughs> really likes Peter Capaldi and cast him based off that rather than Doctor Who. Awesome, cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that sort. Yeah, that's kind of nice. That sort of like characters not being typecast or something. Because like David, like when he left Doctor Who, deliberately did lots of other stuff since then, but. Uh, so lots of different things that weren't Doctor Who's, but in the last few years, especially, like has sort of fallen back into that fandom slightly with stuff like Jessica Jones and Good Omens, and you know he's going to be doing Around the World in Eighty Days, uh, you know stuff like that. That sort of mythical side is slowly coming back into his career. So I feel like I like it when like they kind of come back to sci-fi stuff at some point. It's a nice little touchstone. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Um... Of course, this interview isn't... Well, actually, before we move on to the next bit, I was just wondering, because you've seen The Suicide Squad, the James film, yeah. gun film. What, what is it like? And I'm actually wondering, because from the kind of promo stuff, it struck me that Capaldi was kind of part of this ensemble, but he wasn't particularly a standout. But reading this, it yeah, strikes okay. me that... Is Capaldi rather prominent in the film? Have you got any intention of seeing this film? How um, spoilery can I go? I, um... I feel like I'll probably see it down the line because I like I like the Guardians films. They're probably my favorite Marvel films. Yeah. So I I am interested to see this. So maybe okay. keep it okay. Let's spoil it. Yeah. Okay. So there is the Suicide Squad. You know Idris Elba, Margot Robbie, uh, Joel Kil- Kidman, Kilman, whoever plays Rick Flagg. Um, I forget his name. Um, and you know King Shark and oh, there's all these amazing characters. And they're on this mission to get into this building to sort of stop the mutation of this creature called Starro, who is a giant starfish who was found in space by Peter Capaldi's character. And um, he's brought him to Earth and he's sort of doing experiments on him and stuff like that. So Peter Capaldi sort of, he isn't the bad guy, but he's like the human bad guy, if you see what I mean. Mm. And and he sort of his kid this isn't a spoiler so this is just a plot in the film um he's sort of at one point taken in by the squad for questioning and stuff and reluctantly becomes a member of the squad 
Oh wow! So he is very plot-wise, he's very relevant. Yeah, it's a while before he shows up, but once he's in it, he's in it a lot. Okay, that's cool. And so, what yeah, are your thoughts on great. the? No, sorry, please, your thing. Uh, sorry, no, I was going to say, he's great in it. Like, he's doing a Scottish accent and stuff, and it's one of those things where, like, if I see Christopher, if I see any Doctor Who actor in something, I'm always going, oh, it's the Doctor for, like, a good few episodes. But, like, as soon as Capaldi, you see Capaldi in this, you're like, oh, this isn't the Doctor. You instantly think it's this new guy. You know, he's wearing a tracksuit. He's got all the stuff sticking out his head, and he, the, it's, he's really great in it. And the, the movie is um, the best... DC, DC EU movie since this all started with Man of Steel. This is the best one, and I know that's not saying a lot because a lot of them aren't that great. But I, I really like... love to Shazam. Yeah, I, I really like Shazam and Wonder Woman. I think that yeah. I, I actually think I like those as much, if not more, than what Marvel's been putting out. Yeah, they're like the two. They're two of my favorites as well. It's Shazam and Wonder Woman, and this is better than those two. I feel because oh yeah, we saw Wonder Woman together, didn't we? Yeah, we so, did. So yeah, um, this is just an amazing film. I really enjoyed it. I I sort of lost. I know you. I know you're supposed to the suspension of disbelief. You can kind of run with for the full thing. I sort of struggled with it in the third act a little bit, but um, but you full. But by that point, you're fully embraced in it, and it's great, and it's. You know, it's James Gunn, so it's so brilliantly directed, and it is so comic booky, but not in like a Scott Pilgrim way or a Joel Schumacher Batman way. It's just like the costumes look amazing, everything's very bright, everything's very cool. There's some great set pieces in it. Um, you don't have to have seen any of the other DC movies to get it. There's no. This might be a slight spoiler for DC fans, but I'm guessing if a DC fans listen to this, they've already seen it. But there's no like cameo from Superman or the Flash or there's nothing like that so there's nothing overwhelming about it which I know sometimes you don't particularly like about Marvel films do you that sort of like having to bring it back down to the connected universe stuff there isn't really anything like that like Superman gets a mention and Batman gets a mention but you don't need to that's about it yeah you don't need to watch the DC films to know who Superman and Batman are no no and everybody gets sort of reintroduced and like especially characters like Harley Quinn who people sort of know, even if they haven't seen the movies, they're in sort of the zeitgeist of media and stuff. They sort of get a very, very brief, like, one or two lines introduction. Because what I, I I remember with the um, David Ayer, well, not David Ayer movie, but the, the Suicide Squad movie that came out before, um, there is so much, and now here's Deathstroke, and here's a list of things he's done, and here's El Diablo, and a load of stuff he's done. With this, it's like... Literally, mate, within like the first five minutes, there was a moment in it, and it, it's in the trailer, so I'll say it. It's where you see the squad, and they're walking in front of a giant um, Stars and Stripes flag, a giant American flag, and they're walking in front of it. And it says like that's like the opening of the movie, and it's like at that point, you know, when, you know when something clicks in a movie, and you're just fully in from it from the very start. And it wasn't like I I had any sort of worries going into it or anything. And within those first five minutes, I was like, I'm going to fully enjoy this. And it's just great. The first ten minutes are spectacular. Okay, fantastic. I'm yeah. I'm probably going to check it out based on that. Sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Um, if you now, can, if you can. Uh, yeah, I should be able to. I should be able to. Yeah, there's a cinema near me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, the last thing that Capaldi mentions in this interview is um, he's asked about Jodie leaving and if he has any advice for her. And really he says, nah, she doesn't need my advice. I think she's great. She's amazing. Um, and then he kind of reflects on his own experience of when he took over from Matt. And he's actually, it's really nice. He's really appreciative of kind of how gracious Matt had been to him when he was leaving, especially okay. since he's left himself and he knows all the emotions that you go through and the processing. So he kind of just takes some time to kind of acknowledge how great Matt was when he was taking over from him and how kind he was to him. Of course, That's cool. Yeah, I like that. I remember seeing an interview with Capaldi where he mentions that Matt Smith gave him his watch or something like that, something quite symbolic with the Doctor. And then, you know, because it must be strange turning up and seeing somebody else in your costume. Do you have a quote there from PC? Uh, yeah, he says... Um... It's an odd thing that happens. I always remember when I took over from Matt. It was only when I left that I realised how gracious Matt had been to me. Because he's going through the emotional turmoil of grieving and took the time to be gracious to me. It's like the whole Doctor Who experience. It's not over until it's over, you know. You don't really see it clearly until you've been through it. Oh, it's always nice when he pops by to say hello, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Peter. No problem. You know, I just want to be kind and pop in. <laughs> Dear, we've got a lot more of that to look forward to in a couple of years. Nice. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I like it when because I, I what I really liked about when David left is they released a photo afterwards of David and Matt both together, and mm. they've never done that since. So I always like it when we hear like these little stories of the handover stuff. But I think it should be more, um, not more public at the time, but like, here's a picture of Peter and Matt on the set together and they're wearing each other's costume. You know, something like that. Just, yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah, it's lovely. It's, it's lovely to know that there isn't a defensiveness or a possessiveness over the role. Exactly right. And I think there was back in Classic Who. Yeah, you I hear stories Tom Baker from Tom saying, Baker. Mm. Yeah, like John Pertwee didn't really talk to Tom Baker and Tom Baker didn't really talk to Peter Davison. I think Peter and Colin got along, but then Colin obviously was fired and didn't turn up and then Sylvester did it into Paul and apparently that was a very nice sort of thing. Although yeah, apparently... It's, it's quite um, interesting. The only one really I've heard about um, enduring friendship from Classic Who was between um, Patrick Troughton and um, John Pertwee. Apparently they had a really good relationship. Oh, really? Oh, I think I have seen... I don't I don't know if I've read that, but I've, I could definitely tell that from interviews when, that, when I've seen them together. Mm. I'd say that kind of, of all the classic Q partnerships I've seen, I mean, I've seen clips of the five Doctors, but I've primarily seen the three Doctors, and I think it is notable yeah. what a good back and forth they have in terms of chemistry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look forward to doing that. This year we'll do. And will we do the five doctors this year? We will. October. Do you think so? Yes. Well, we did. We did the. Uh, oh yeah, the five doctors. doctors yeah. yeah. Five yeah. doctors is the next one. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do a thing because I've got the DVD and there's like a remastered special edition version and the original version. All so right. be interesting. I'll do a poll on Twitter and we'll see which one people think we should watch. Brilliant. So. Uh... Yeah, cool. Are you ready for That's the That's it. No more, no more news. Yeah, nothing nothing else notable has happened in the world of Doctor Who this week at all. Before before we get into the big news, can I just say, um, I mentioned this episode one, but maybe if you're a new listener, you haven't heard this before. After this episode, 
I'm only mentioning it now because I will probably forget later. After this episode goes out, we'll be going on a slight break for about a month. Um, there will be videos and stuff uploaded within that month. There's going to be uh, perhaps... Yeah, we'll put that interview up. I won't confirm it yet, but there's an interview coming. Um, there's actually two interviews coming. Um, there's like a, a behind-the-scenes video with Harrison and lots of fun stuff coming. But as for the watch-long and for this actual podcast, that will end for a month um, just because I'm moving and um, it's easier to just give it a rest for a little bit so that we can appreciate it again when we come back in September time. Hi. So, Sorry, uh, yeah, big news. Go big on. Big news. As we heard earlier this week, and we've already reported on, uh, Jodie Whittaker is uh, leaving the role of the Doctor. But perhaps even bigger than that... What? I didn't hear that. Harry, if I wanted to hear more information about that, where could I go to find out some information about that? Well, I guess you could follow uh, our podcast. Uh, we're available on YouTube, iTunes, Acast, Spotify, probably somewhere else that I can't think of right now. Probably. And we also have a Twitter, an Instagram, all kinds of things. All kinds of That's things. That's true. Yeah. That's enough plugging that we've done. <laughs> yeah. Jody's going. And who else is going, Harry? Harry? The Shona Chris Chibnall, which for me is even bigger because when the showrunner changes, the whole show pretty much changes. And yeah, I'm not gonna lie, we've been, I've been just, ever since the news has come out, and now I've been continuously speculating who might, uh, might not, and will definitely not be the next Doctor <laughs> Who showrunner. I've got 21 yeah. names. I've got 21 Holy names. Shit. <laughs> That's a lot of names. Can I just say the fact that we say we're excited about this doesn't say that we dislike Chibnall or anything like that. But the whole the whole rebranding of the show is just generally very exciting. So you've got twenty one names. I think I've got twelve. So okay. um, I, I believe we've split these into categories, haven't we? We've yes. done like likely to be uh, well, not likely. There's a possibility they could be showrunner. They've never written for the show before and never going to happen. That's it. Yeah, I've got I've got them, the old yeah. guard, the TV writers, other TV writers. And not gonna happen. So okay, so let who should we? What should we start with? Should we start with the old guards? Should we start with yeah. those guys first? I think we'll start with the guy who I think everyone was expecting to take over from Moffat, Mark Gatiss. Yes, he was on the mine as well. Yeah. So I feel like Mark Gatiss was a very prominent writer for like ten solid years on the show. He didn't write for Chibnall Zero though, which makes it less likely. But I feel like lots of people were expecting him to all but be a shoe in when Moffat took over because obviously they were on show yeah. together. It would just make sense. But now it seems less certain. Do you think? I mean, Mark is still very involved in the show. He still does big finish. Do you think there's any possibility of Mark coming back to take over? I remember. I think we might have reported on actually. Mark did an interview where he said that when they announced the series 11 writers and he wasn't on it, Chris Chibnall sent him an email and said, just because you're not writing this series doesn't mean I don't want you to work for Doctor Who anymore. You're still part of the Doctor Who family and all this stuff. Um, so, but then that means nothing, of course, because Chibnall says he has no involvement in who's going to take over the reins. Um, mm. Yeah. I, mean, no, I don't still... know. I, I, I think it's a possibility... Uh, I'd like to say it's quite high of a possibility, but the same, I I would be surprised if he hasn't been offered it before. Yeah, especially because he's very much part of the BBC. He, you know, he does League of Gentlemen with them. Just this Christmas, I think he did like two or three ghost stories around Christmas time. He did, didn't he? Wrote. Yeah. 
He's very, very he's got much a new involved. thing coming out as well at the moment. I think it's called like The Last Man or something like that. He's got a new drama coming out as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, that I keep seeing on his uh, Instagram, so that looks cool. But yeah, it's one of those things where I think there there must be a reason why he hasn't done it yet because it would seem bizarre for him not to have been asked. Yeah, and the fact that. He must have been asking, has clearly said no, makes me think that he isn't going to do it. But I would That's love to see him do it. Same, same. I feel like it would definitely be kind of a return to a similar tone to what we had during the Russell Moffat era, because while there was a tonal shift, it was less notable than the one from Moffat to Chibnall. I feel like it would be returning yeah, yeah. to that to a certain extent. 100%. Uh, um, just to make sure, you can still hear me, can't you? Yeah, yeah, I can. That's okay. I'm just flicking through my notes on my phone to get my showrunners up. Okay. Um, go for another one, Harry. Who else have you got? My next one is a great writer. We both really enjoy him. That is Paul Cornell. Another one of mine. Um, again, I think there's less of a chance of this happening than there is with uh, Mark Gatiss. Why do you think that is? Um, not not to like sp- spread too much gossip, but from we've. We've tried to get Paul on the podcast a couple of times and he's always been very generous and emailed and had conversations with us. But the the underlining messages that I get is just he wants to focus on other stuff from Doctor Who, I feel. Okay. I feel he had a great experience with Russell and doing all that stuff. But then there's, if you look online, there's some beef with him and Moffat, I feel. Maybe not deliberate, but like I think like Paul Cornell originally came up with the idea for the the story that ended up being with Catherine Jenkins and then it got rejected and then Moffat wrote it himself and used it as a uh, as a Christmas special and he, he he seems to be getting a lot of rejected stuff from the Stephen Moffat era if you go on Wikipedia and go on, and go on like cancelled Doctor Who stories and then go from like the Moffat era onwards there's a lot of Paul Cornell cancelled stuff in there interesting that's interesting yeah. i mean perhaps in that case considering there's been some distance between moffat and the show maybe that means it's more likely you return now i don't know perhaps yeah perhaps yeah but i, I don't know i'd like I, I we i've never met paul we've exchanged emails once or twice and the, the thing i get from that is that he just wants to distance himself from doctor who in general very interesting very interesting well but i, I would we... love him he he, he yeah. out of all the old guard people i've got He's the he's the one I would want the most. Yeah, especially considering how excellent human nature and the family of blood were. I think he's a phenomenal writer. 100%. He's great for Doctor Who. Um, I would be really interesting to see what do a show now, but we'll have to see. We we'll have to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can I go? Can I go with one of mine? Yes. Okay, I've got Peter Mc McKee, who ah. I believe that's how you pronounce this. Who wrote, wrote Kabla. As well as co-writing Praxius. Um, what's that? Is that a Doctor Who episode? Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, mainly because his name got thrown around... Oh, pardon me, I just punched the desk. Um, his name got thrown around a little while ago, um, and I think we even reported on it as a future showrunner. Yes. Um, so, if there's any belief in that. And I think he's somebody who's had enough of an impact on the Chibnall era for the BBC to consider him because Kablam is my favourite Whitaker episode. Okay, interesting. Um, so, so I would love him to take over. So you think of the uh, Chibnall's current writing team is he the one you'd most want? He's the one I most want, maybe not the one I would expect to end up as showrunner. 
but uh, I'm not sure. I have to wait and see. I feel like he's closer to the realms of possibility, especially since he's also created his own drama series, Wentworth. So he's been a showrunner yeah. before. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point, actually. I hadn't considered that with some of my options. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, another another one I've got is Vinyar Patel, who wrote Fugitive Ooh. of the Jadoon. Oh, I've not got them. Um, which, which my um, autocorrect, I've just noticed, has changed to Fugitive of Jason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe he wrote he wrote that episode and maybe one more, and that's it. He's only written two episodes of Doctor Who, but the episodes he's written have been ones that fans have enjoyed or have been um, turning points within the show. And it would seem strange to me to give someone those responsibilities if you didn't think that they could therefore actually helm the show itself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but then that also makes me ask, how much involvement did he have in those scripts? Because, like, Fugitive of the Jadoon, we love because Jack's back in it. But obviously that would have been something that Chibnall would have asked to have been written in to then come up again in the Christmas special. So. As well as the Fugitive Doctor herself. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So despite having these big moments in them, how responsible is uh, sorry, uh, Vinya for those actual moments? That's true. I mean, was did him... I've, was it a co... Was it like a co-credit of him and Chibnall for Fugitive? Or was it just him? Uh, it might have been a co-credit. I honestly can't remember. I think Tardis Wiki or whatever listed it as his work. Okay. But um, perhaps it, I, I I honestly can't remember. Mm. Yeah. Along those lines, um, another uh, writer who, where people are dubious about how much they wrote of the episode itself is a uh, Robert Sherman who wrote Dalek back in series one. Obviously, that was uh, the big yeah. that was the big episode that reintroduced the Daleks, and there's a lot of speculation about whether or not the actual decisions about the Dalek itself and what it was able to do came from Robert or um, Russell himself. Um, but we know a lot of it is definitely from Robert himself because it was a pseudo adaptation of a big finished story he did. Um, but personally, yes. Dalek, I just included him. I don't know if he's within the chance of likelihood at all because Dalek is literally the only TV episode he's written. But Dalek he is... He does a lot of big finished stuff, yeah. Mm. But basically, Robert is... And Dalek is probably my favourite episode of the show, perhaps ever. I so I love Robert Schumann and I'd love for him to come back. I just have no idea how likely it is at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's done um Um uh, yeah, yeah, that's literally all he's wrote for Big Finish. Uh, for Dot T, you are right, yeah. Um I'll go back in with one of mine. Mine is uh a Chibnall writer, and that's Joy Wilkinson, who oh. wrote The Witch Finders. That's um, a by one. your reaction, do you do you have her suggested on yours as well? I don't have her, no. I only have one other Chibnall era writer and one Moffat yeah. Russell era writer. Yeah. Yeah. I won't lie, when going through potential lists of people who could be showrunner, there was just a lot of blokes and a lot of white dudes, and I thought you know, I didn't want this list just so I deliberately went looking for female Doctor Who writers and there is not many. There really mm. isn't, especially since the series return which sucks. Um and the one that stood out to me, one of my favourites anyway, was Joy Wilkinson, so why the hell not? Yeah. I think it would be give a refreshing look on the series to have it through a different perspective of eyes. And in the same vein of that, uh I've included from series twelve Maxine Alberton, who wrote The Haunting uh, of Villa Diodati. I've not seen this written anywhere, but The Haunting of Villa Diodati is one of my 
favorite episode of Doctor Who. I think it's the best um, episode from the Tubal era by a landslide. I think it's an excellent, excellent episode. So personally, of kind of the Tubal era writers, she's my top choice. Oh, cool. I, honestly, what happens in that episode? That's the one where they go to see Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley and Byron and then the lone Cyberman comes. I vaguely... Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. It's all set in that house. Yeah, yeah, but I, that's my... I love that episode. I think that's an excellent, excellent episode. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a good choice, actually, Harry. I, that one had completely slipped past me. Yeah, I like that. Um, mm. I've got one more old guard review um, person, and I'm just slightly time-conscious. I think... I think we've got about 10 minutes of realistic time we can talk about okay. this left. So I'll try and whiz through this last one. My last one is Toby Whitehouse. That's the same um, one for me. Sc- oh, brilliant. There we go then. Who wrote um, School Reunion and it's just generally wrote some fantastic episodes of Doctor Who. And his name, I just keep getting seen thrown around by Doctor Who fans. And it's yeah. not saying, how about Toby Whitehouse? It's like, can we please, for the love of God, just have him now? We've waited so long. Yeah. We, we want him to be the showrunner. <laughs> yeah, I know he's written some fan favourites. Um, he was one of the top choices following Moffat for fans. So, I mean, it makes sense for him to go back to him. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go to never written for the show, but there's a possibility. I've only okay. got three options, so I'll let you go first. Okay, the first one I've got is Jed Mercurio, who was the showrunner for Line of Duty and Bodyguard, two massive Massive BBC yes. dramas. I have his name for never going to happen. Really? Why do you think he's never going to yeah. happen? I feel like he's probably maybe too expensive or he has something else in the works. Yeah, that's true. I know he had something that debuted at the start of this year. Um, yeah. The thing is, for me, if I was a BBC, I was like, right, they clearly care about Doctor Who because they're making, they're, you know, having the centenary special. They care about Doctor Who yeah. to a certain extent, no matter what some people may want to believe. If they want to like <laughs> revive Doctor Who in a way that will like pull in people, get people talking about it every week, get trending on Twitter, why don't they get the guy who's done two shows that have done just that? That's I saw opinion. it. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I saw I saw a headline from the Telegraph today that I didn't get because you have to be a subscription member to read the Telegraph and I'm not and it just said how to save Doctor Who and it said make it more adult bring back David Tennant add sex I was like yep there you go <laughs> that's why well, those, that's why we don't listen to everybody's yeah. opinion those are, ter- those are three terrible ideas um, I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> they were um, I'll give you one of mine um, never written for the show but a good possibility okay. and that's that's Simon Allen, who has written The Musketeers. Okay. And also a series called The Watch as well, which I think is out at the moment. I'm not sure. Okay, um, why you Um I picked him because, well, The Musketeers was great, and it people really enjoyed that, and it starred some great people. I know Capaldi was in it, and it's just one of those things that I feel has been sort of under the radar, that sort of BBC show that has... A, people really liked but have sort of forgotten about really so I feel like he's a good possibility because he's not everybody's target so that's I feel true. like there's a just, just just a chance there that that could work mm, that's interesting yeah someone yeah uh, my next yeah. one is possibly too big for the show uh, it's Jack Thorne he's probably best known as he's been around for a while very acclaimed writer best known as kind of the head writer for his dark materials um, yeah. but he also uh, was one of the writers for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the play for that, 
He wrote a very clean okay. series a few years ago for Channel 4 called National Treasure. Basically, he's been around the block, very acclaimed writer, wrote, has written kind of fantasy before with his dark materials. Question yeah. of whether or not he'd do Doctor Who. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's always the thing, isn't it? Is would they do it? Um, I've I've got someone I know you admire, um, Jimmy McGovern, who wrote Time for BBC. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, mainly because that's a BBC drama at the moment that did quite well. So why? A lot of these are they wrote for the BBC. It did well. Why wouldn't they ask him? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a question of how much interest in Doctor Who they have because all the head writers we've had so far have been fans of the show. And do you need yeah. to be a fan of the show to be showrunner? I'm not sure. Maybe you just need to be a damn good writer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had one more, and I just deleted it. It sucks. Oh, no, here it is. Matthew Hall, who wrote Keeping Faith, which is the Eva Miles or Eva Mills um, drama that was recently on BBC as well. That oh, seems to get good reviews. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't think... Yeah. I don't think... Obviously, they've never written for the show before, but they've written good drama, and I feel... Doctor Who is not just a sci-fi show; it is a it is a drama. That's true. That's true. And I feel like you need to get that right to make people care about Sonic Screwdrivers. People don't care about Sonic Screwdrivers if there's no point in them being there. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on. These next two for me um, are Suzanne Heathcote and Laura Neal, who are the head okay. writers for Killing Eve series three and series four, respectively. Um, Killing Eve has done this very cool thing where every series has had a different female head writer and maybe the next thing oh, we've okay. had a female doctor maybe we should have a female head writer so I feel like either exactly. of these could be very viable choices and I know people really like Killing Eve and it's another one of those shows that always pulls in viewers so it would be kind of a yeah. good kind of hook to get people in Shall we go on to Never Gonna Happen? Oh, I maybe? <laughs> one more notable one for TV writers which is Okay, um, go for it American writer J. Michael Straczynski, I think his name is. He's an American writer okay. who's written for sci-fi shows such as Babylon 5. And he actually said on Twitter that he would love the opportunity to do it if he was given the opportunity. Cool. He just doesn't know whether or not That's he would nice. do it because he's American. Do you think an American could write <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who? Yeah, I don't see why not. We've had a Welsh person do it and a Scottish person do it. Why not have an American person do it? Yeah. Um... As long as they're familiar with the show. I think you have to be familiar with the show. I think that's a mm. criteria. You don't necessarily have to be a fanboy, yeah. but you have to know the characters and stuff like that. I mean, this guy clearly um, was familiar, because in his tweets, he said he'd do it in a heartbeat, or is that two heartbeats, because of the two hearts. Oh, fair dues. So oh, he yeah. knows oh, what clearly a big fan. About. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go on to Never Gonna Happen, maybe. Let me guess one of yours. Is one of them Neil Gaiman? Yes, because Neil Gaiman, <laughs> I think he's great. Wrote a Doctor's Wife, Good Omens. But he has deconfirmed himself. <laughs> yeah, he he's said to be... He's not going to do it. Yeah, so he's quite definitively not going to happen. Did he say why he wasn't going to do it, or is it just? I he's think busy? he's just really busy with his other shows. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've only got three here. I'm okay. going to save one of them till last. Okay. Um, Matthew Graham, who wrote Life on Mars. Now, I feel that would have worked really well if they weren't working on another series of that show right now. Oh, are they? Yeah, it's a Sam Tyler. Um, it's it's a crossover between Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes. Were they part of the same universe? Yeah, have you seen Ashes to Ashes? I've not seen either. I must confess. 
Oh no, yeah, that yeah. So they did two seasons of Life on Mars, and then John Sim left, um, and then they wanted to do another one, so they they went a decade forward and brought in a, a female lead whose name ah, escapes me because I, I haven't see. I haven't seen the full series, but um, yeah, so they're doing another series of that. That's cool. Uh, my next. But I know that Matthew. Sorry, can I just say I know that Matthew is a big fan of Doctor Two because Sam Tyler was named after Rose Tyler. So there you oh, go. Oh right, cool. Yeah. Uh, the next two that definitely aren't going to happen are Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat. They're not coming back. <laughs> They're not coming back. They're not coming back. They're done with the show. Next. They're doing other things. Okay, next for me, another two I'm putting together. Um, the writers for Killing Eve Series 1 and Killing Eve Series 2 are Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Emerald Fennel. The thing is... is I've, ne- I've never seen Killing Eve. Is there a showrunner and they just have head writers? Because who's in charge of the, I don't think hiring those people? I think... Each series just has a different head writer slash show, and I think I think they must have the same producer across them. I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge produces it all. I think, okay. but she okay, only okay, yeah, because yeah. I know kind of Emerald was a friend of hers before she became um, the head writer of series two. But basically, right, yeah, they're both way too big. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is in yeah. the states now. She did Fleabag. She's huge. Emerald Fennell just won an Oscar for writing Promising Young Woman. Neither of them are going to come back to do Doctor Who. Yeah. They're in um, my next choice, they're in La La Land. My next choice is Charlie Brooker, who wrote Black Mirror. Oh, um, okay. I feel that yeah. could be a really fun sort of psycho sort of vibe to it, that sort of yeah. twisted reality stuff. But yeah. I think that's maybe a decision that the BBC don't want to go in. I also think Charlie Brooker, Charlie Brooker's also a really funny writer. I think he has all the credentials to write for Doctor Who. I just can't see him writing for Doctor Who. I feel like it would be almost too anarchic. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be brilliant. I'd love watching it, but I can't see it happening. Um, No. Last person, last couple people for me are Michaela Cole, just because similar reason to Fee Bridge. She's kind of going that trajectory. She's been cast in X Black Panther. I can't see her doing Doctor Who again. She's skyrocketing up to Hollywood. Um, and finally, I heard my friend said they saw one person online say this, and it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> Taika Waititi is... I don't know why someone even suggested Taika Waititi. I mean, it would work, but it's never, ever going to happen. Taika Waititi is never going to write for Doctor Who. I'm sorry. No, it's not that doesn't happen. mean I don't want to see it because I do want to see that. But okay. it's not going to happen. That's one. Of the, that's a pipe dream. Yeah. So yeah, we I've, powered through those. <laughs> I've got one more. I've got oh, one more. I haven't mentioned. You have one more. Yeah, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. I've, that's interesting. It's not going to happen, but it's interesting. <laughs> exactly, they're all really interesting, but it's never going to happen. Yeah, I just thought they would be so good because the quirkiness of Inside Number Nine, and I, I've seen that episode where they're in a wardrobe so many times. It's so funny. But it's just, and it's just they're friends with Mark Gatiss. Imagine how it would feel <laughs> for Mark Gatiss if his two like friends who he worked with, who are nowhere near as much of a Doctor Who fan as he is became showrooms over him. Imagine how Mark Gatiss would actually feel. <laughs> but I mean, you never know. Remember, Chris Reckleson was in that one episode of League of Gentlemen. So, he was, who he knows? Was. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right, Harry. We powered through them because I've got to go out for tea. So, um, yeah. but um, yeah, I hope people enjoy. Oh, hold on, what's happened? My laptop is. Is it on? What's happened? Can you still hear me? I can still hear you. I'm still recording. Uh, oh, you're still recording. Apparently, this is still on as well. Um, we'll find out in a minute. But uh, yeah, I've got to go out for tea. So thanks very much for everybody for listening thus far. But um, yeah, we'll be back in a, in a month. I'm looking forward to coming back because it's actually been longer for us than it has been for the listeners since we last watched some Doctor Who. Yeah, it's been a while. You just kind of needed it has a, been a little. break so you wouldn't have Doctor Who burnout. Exactly. And I feel like the news of you know Jodie returning and stuff like that has helped. Uh, sorry, Jodie leaving has um, sort of helped me infuse my passion for Doctor Who again. Yeah, I feel like I'm ready to watch more Doctor Who. Speaking of which, it's time yeah. for the watch long segment, isn't it? So, it is uh, Harry. No, 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 no. You should introduce it, Tim. Oh. You should. Oh, uh, you, I've had to go through. I've been put through the ringer, and you've called me out for all these really bad segues. You do it. You do it. Well, okay. Well, I said to you before the podcast started that I was. I, I need to go blow my nose because I've, this last week I've been full of cold. It's not been COVID. I've been doing my flow test before I've been going out, and I'm all fine. Um, which is all very well and good because it meant I didn't actually have to go and see a doctor, which is okay because they've got more important things that I always think, especially with COVID and stuff like that. And they've got their own family. They probably have a son or, or even a daughter. Talking of which, here's the doctor's daughter. Okay, that was pretty good. <laughs> that was an easy one. That wasn't the planet of the Ood. Or yeah, or the, like the Strontaran stratagem. <laughs> that's very true that's very true so uh we'll see you in a month but um there will be stuff on before then as well for you all to listen and check out too and um, so keep an eye on all our socials as harry mentioned earlier and we'll see you on the flip side of these adverts make sure you subscribe to the official bigger on the inside podcast Hello everybody, welcome back to Big On Inside, the new Who Dot Who Watch Long Podcast. It's the bit where we watch an episode. Um, Harry, what is that episode this week? This week we are watching The Doctor's Daughter by Stephen Greenhorn. That's right, and has he done anything with Doctor Who since or before, or do I need to get on TARDIS wiki? His name rings a bell, I feel like this is the first time we've seen Greenhorn's name. Stephen Greenhorn. Let's have a quick look here. Um, TARDIS wiki. Here we go. Let's have a look. Apparently, I've been on this before. Um, just the Doctor's Daughter, I believe. Yeah. Really? Is that um, it? Oh, the Lazarus Experiment and the Doctor's Daughter. He also wrote the okay. online comic strip Mind of Shadows. Um, Stephen Greenhorn created the half and introduced Jenny to Doctor's Daughter. Usually credited, he is usually credited on Doctor Who whenever the half made reappearances, such as the Magician's Apprentice. Uh, so there you go. Yeah, so mm. it's only two installments, this being his last. Um, which is surprising because I enjoyed this episode. Um, I know it's got a mixed response online, people claiming it to be like the most clickbaity Doctor Who episode ever. Um, but personally, I enjoyed it. But before I get into what I think, Harry. What did you think of The Doctor's Daughter? I think it's a cool episode and it introduces a lot of fun ideas that kind of has a lot of 
for exploring. I, I just, I just wish, I just wish that that there was something interesting that could be discussed about the casting of actors in this episode and what happened to their lives outside of this episode. But unfortunately, sure. there's nothing like that with this episode. Nope, so we'll just have to talk about the episode itself. Yeah. Let's just talk about the episode itself, indeed. Um, let's start at the very start of the episode. Um, a three-person TARDIS crew, which was fun to see, uh, the 10th Doctor, Donna, and Martha. That was quite interesting dynamic at the very start, especially with the TARDIS going AWOL and the Doctor referencing his hand and Martha having to fill Donna in on past adventures and stuff like that in that very short opening segment we get there. Um, I think that's a quite a fun dynamic, actually, those three. And throughout this episode, it's a shame that Martha, despite it being a returning episode for Martha, he's actually sent off somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a cool dynamic. It's kind of cool. I feel like it's kind of established that kind of Martha and Donna have a pretty nice kind of relationship and a good back and forth. They kind of have a good... They have different experiences and yet similar experiences and different backgrounds and yet a lot of things in common. It's a cool dynamic between them. So it would have been cool to see more of that. But we get some yeah. of it at the start and some of it at the end. It's very lovely. It's interesting that they bring Martha back and then in the previous episodes, Martha is turned into a clone. So we don't really get much actual Martha with the Doctor. And then in this episode, she's distanced from the Doctor entirely. Yeah, yeah. Although the Doctor himself gets cloned. There's a lot of cloning this season, there is. isn't there? There is. Um, the, the, the sequence in which the, the, the people, the, the humans take the Doctor and stick his hand in that machine, I was watching it, I was thinking, why isn't he like restraining them or fighting back or anything like that? And I was sort of thinking, well, the 10th Doctor never really does that. And I was thinking, what if this was he the 9th Doctor? He would have proper thrown a punch or something, I imagine. Do you think he would have thrown a punch? I think he wouldn't have allowed them to uh, stick his hand in that machine without knowing what's going on. What the bloody mm, hell are you yeah. fucking idiots doing? He would have said. <laughs> and then he would have turned and well, uppercut somebody. Not with that language. It, it's not his before um, watershed. Oh, uh, it is. How about a nice cup of absolutely fantastic? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> mine is bad. That's my favourite. That's my favourite knife doctor meme I keep seeing going around. Um, yeah, what do you think to that? The fact that this he doesn't... He, that could have been anything. And he just sort of didn't really do much about it to stop what was going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess that, what else could he have done? I mean, it's clearly a plot point, isn't it? Because if he did resist, that would have been it. <laughs> I, the, thing, the thing that I didn't quite follow is why exactly did they grab the doctor? and put him in and then clone him because they didn't do that for anyone else on the TARDIS team just for the Doctor they never is really explained be- why is that just because when Jenny sort of came out um, shit really hit the fan quite quickly didn't it the half arrived with their guns and they blew up half of the tunnel yeah that is true but it, it would have maybe been interesting if they had put Donna or Martha in the machine instead and you could have had an episode just called Martha's Daughter and everyone was like, what is this <laughs> Um, what of like? <laughs> what do you think to um, the Doctor's daughter? What do you think to Jenny? Um, let's talk about her the first half of this episode because I think it's fair to say the Doctor isn't a big fan of Jenny to start with. He's not that keen on having her around. He doesn't particularly acknowledge, even though he says she's my daughter. Um, he doesn't really sort of warm to her very much. Yeah, I 
yeah it's kind of because obviously I, the way it's explained in the show is that kind of like these, these clones are designed with a mindset of being soldiers and fighting for war and I, I, it's kind of revealed as the episode goes on that kind of a lot of the Doctor perhaps more he cares to admit does have that always soldier-like mentality yeah. to, to see it um, to see that aspect of himself kind of embodied in such a explicitly militaristic way um kind of he doesn't like seeing that reflection of himself and that yeah, part of himself manifest yeah. it's like jenny's born for war isn't she that's what she's sort of created to do whereas a doctor he's still recovering from a war so it's almost like these two sides are sort of clashing against each other and i like that sequence in which they are locked up and he's like she calls him a general, I think, doesn't she, Jenny? She says you're sat there just yeah. planning out this movement and how we're going to get around the base and do all this stuff. And I think it's the first time that's really been brought to the attention of the audience is that despite the doctor saying, you know, he's not a violent person. Well, he isn't a violent person, but you know, he, he there is war within him and there's that sort of military side to him. It's interesting to have that brought to the front, uh, like you know, the spotlight I mean, just slightly. That's another thing that's kind of become recurring within this series because obviously, well, last week's two episodes were all unit based, and kind of there's a very explicit thing said about how the doctor kind of led Martha down this line of work and this lifestyle. He almost mm. weaponized her indirectly. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, so yeah, it's quite interesting that when he's greeted with somebody who is instantly designed for war, he doesn't. You know, there is a difference yeah. there, isn't there? It's all right if it's all up right. to him. What are you doing? Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> Harry has this thing, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I, I will be talking. I, I, I tend not to look at the laptop screen as I'm talking to Harry. I wander around the room. And I look across, and he's 99% of the time fiddling with something. And this time, what, what was that you were fiddling with, though? Was that a pair of tweezers? Yeah, a pair of tweezers. Yeah, yeah. And he's just sort of fiddling with them. Just sort of clipping yeah. them away, trying to balance them on his nose. Uh, as long as the listeners are enjoying this, um, uh, we spoke. I spoke about it a second ago, in which Martha is kidnapped by the half, um, and she sort of mm. spent a lot of her time away from the main action of this episode. Um, I like her interaction with the half species. What did you think to that? Yeah, I know the half are interesting because they're not. It kind of makes it much less of a one-sided thing we're not just seeing the human side of the conflict by splitting our kind of heroes up with that and the half it very much becomes kind of a war of two sides and they don't they almost go out of their way they don't go out of their way to not make the half seem as violent they're clearly you know also soldiers but um it's clear that they're not just very monsters they clearly are civilized themselves and have a community and a civilization that which matches the sophistication of the more human side. Yeah, they did it with um, what I'm about to say relates back to Planet of the Ood as well, in which they do sort of the alien creature isn't always necessarily the bad guy. I quite like that. The alien creature, it's not like sort of saying, oh, an alien, evil, kill it, or just stop whatever it's doing. It's like, as you know, sometimes it has a better point than what anybody else actually has to say. And so far, hmm. the, those episodes have actually been some of my favourite this series. I mean, at the end of this one, there isn't really any kind of villain. 
is there? Like, no one's an outright villain. You know, there's that older soldier on the human side who's yeah. a bit a bit dodged, but even at the end, like, you know, he's not, like, imprisoned or anything, at least that we see. Yeah. He kind of just feels a bit shit about himself. Yeah. Um, th- let's go back to Jenny, because, you know, that's sort of the main link the main point of this episode um i particularly like the sequence in which um the doctor hears both her heartbeats um and there's that sort of realization of she actually you know kind of is slightly related to him but then that it leads to quite an interesting moment with the same doctor in which donna asks if she's a time lord and he gets quite angry about that because there is no time lord and you can't just it seems like this is what will. This is the start of what we see in his final episodes. Is that sort of rage moment, where almost being a time lord is something you have to earn, and he's earned it. And somebody coming along and just being cloned from him and claiming to be a time lord isn't enough. And she does yeah. eventually throughout the episode earn his respect, but that starting point of that relationship and that sort of friendship that blossoms is is probably not what a lot of audience members would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's established kind of the Doctor believes that there's more to being a time war than simply genetics. It yeah. is about kind of like like kind of history as a race. He says it's a shared suffering or something like that. Yeah, he does mention something like that, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> I like the fact that they've been subtle about carrying over characteristics on the Tenth Doctor into Jenny. I like the fact that one of them is the fact that they could basically get out of any situation by flirting with the opposite sex. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like she goes up to his bar, she flirts with that guy, gives him a snog, and then she's out of trouble instantly. Whereas the Tenth Doctor basically does that almost every week. Someone falls in love yeah. with him, he uses it to his advantage, and saves the day. Although I think that there could be an argument to make that the Tenth Doctor maybe isn't as aware that's what he's doing, or he pretends mm. he isn't. Yeah, that's true. He never really goes into a situation and goes, hello, ladies. He sort of just sort of wanders up and he sort of goes, oh, you, you, you're flirting with me. I'm going to use this to my, to my advantage to stop the yeah, adipose right. or whatever he ends up doing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think to the sequence where Jenny ends up doing all those backflips? Um... It's kind of like the big kind of... I get why it's there. It's, it's like that kind of big spectacle moment of the show, the action set piece. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like what follows afterwards as well, where um, the Doctor greets her again, and he's like really chuffed that she managed to use her own logic to get out of that situation. Mm, yeah. The logic of flipping well. <laughs> Can you do a backflip, Harry? It, 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 I mean, it's, it's been established now quite fairly that kind of it runs in the Doctor's deep... DNA, it's the tenth Doctor's DNA that he has really good hand-eye coordination. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So why wouldn't Jenny be doing this? I think it would have been great if she just picked up a Satsuma and just lobbed it, <laughs> just right in, or just in the right spot to deactivate the lasers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's quite a, there's a well. I don't know if you found it emotional. It's clearly played to be emotional. Um, where Martha is about to drown and that half jumps in and saves her um, and Martha selfishly doesn't bother to try and offer her hand to save the half and just sort of watches the poor fish hybrid human drown in a muddy puddle um, what does she, she think that? No, she doesn't. Like that? he just sort of just disappears with his little bubbles going I mean could you argue he's already too 
far gone by that point. But yeah, but if, if if I saw you drowning in quicksand and I couldn't get near the quicksand, you would at least put your arm out. Go, look, I'm trying. It's not going to help, but I'm trying. Is that what you'll be thinking in my last dying moments? You're like, I want him to know that I'm trying. Yeah, at least, at least I'm giving it a ruddy good you, go. It, in my dying moments, it's all about how you look, isn't it, Tim? I'll be going, oh, This is. we should really be getting the audio for this. <laughs> Quick, Harry, now, what did you think to Series 5? Quickly. <laughs> oh, well, I think that Matt Smith, it's uh, initially almost a 10 point of like Where's it going? Um... Something that I don't think is talked about a lot with this episode is that the relationship between the Doctor and Jenny is very father-daughtery. But what about the relationship between the three of them with Jenny, Donna and the Doctor? Because by stereotype and by the nature of relationship, Donna automatically sort of becomes a mother figure to Jenny. She's like the cool mum almost. She gives Jenny her name. She helps the Doctor warm to Jenny. So what do you think about the relationship between Jenny and Donna in that respect, and also the new relationship that that sort of creates for the Doctor and Donna, that sort of you got a mother-daughter relationship and almost a, a wife and husband sort of relationship going on there as well. I mean, I'll notice though, but I mean, almost every episode they've made a point that at some point the Doctor yeah. and Donna are like, no, no, we're not a couple, we're not married, stop saying that. Yeah, the Doctor and Donna subject. don't have a, they don't have a sort of a love uh, relationship, but they've got that element that that you admire to have in a in a long term marriage. I feel, which is just good mates. And you look at a husband and wife, you go, "Oh, they're having a great time with their life." And I feel that's what the Doctor and Donna have. So people assume that there must be a couple. But I, I quite like the the relationship that they have in this, which is Donna is really she really loves Jenny, and she has to sort of encourage the Doctor to do so as well. I don't know if like a motherly position is quite accurate though. I. I uh, denote Donna more to the role of, not denote, um, assign her more to the role of the cool aunt. The cool stepmom. I I feel like cool aunt. I feel like that's that's what I would say. Yeah. What do you therefore think, what do you think that does then with the Doctor and Donna's relationship in that situation? I think it's almost a, I don't know, sibling-esque, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose it is a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, sort of older sibling sort of thing of... Yeah, I guess so. I never looked at it like that. Yeah, because it, yeah, it doesn't become a relationship where, from Jenny's point of view, that's her mother and father. She doesn't really have a strong mm. bond with Donna, despite knowing Donna as long as she's known the Doctor. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah he, she wants to make her dad proud. Because despite being a clone, she has that kind of desire to have parental acceptance yeah um, for I think the second time in the term of Doctor's tenure he speaks about his family and he mentions that they're pretty much all dead he says he has kids at one point they're, or he had children, they're dead um, which would imply that he had a wife and she's dead, imagining that they died in the time war is what I would imagine um well, I don't Box. know. I'll tell you. I mean, if you go back to the very, you know, the very start of the show, we have the doctor and his granddaughter. Um, I, I, I have to assume that the rest of his family was lost before the start of the show back in the sixties. Perhaps, perhaps. Or I, I look at it that 
perhaps the doctor had a great relationship with his granddaughter, um, closer relationship than perhaps he did with his own children or his parents. And therefore, when he made the leap to leave Gallifrey, he took um, Susan with him and left his rest of his family there in hopes that one day they would join him. Interesting. I mean, it's not something that I don't know if there's some kind of like rule book or Bible as to what writers can and can't talk about. But I imagine one of the big rules in Red Underline, if there is such a thing, is don't reveal what happened to the doctor's family. Yeah, you can throw hints and suggestions, but maybe not a, you know, in stone, this is what happened. Yeah, I don't feel like we'll ever get more than what we get here. Yeah. Unless um, you already have done extended no, media. Sorry, go on. What was you saying? I was going to say, unless you have done an extended media, which we don't know about. Yeah, perhaps they have done it. There's probably a comic or something out there that explains it slightly. Um, let's jump to the conclusion of the episode in which the Doctor, the Half and the Human and Jenny and Martha and Donna, they all meet up in um, you know, the big garden room and the Doctor picks up that glass bowl and he smashes it on the ground and does a big speech. Um, and, then, and then Jenny's shot. Um, <laughs> she went, <laughs> When is she shot, right? I sort of thought, because obviously I know it's coming, so it wasn't totally emotional. But I sort of thought, this guy, he's really shit out of luck when it comes to meeting new people. Like, 90% of the new people the Doctor meets, they die almost instantly. Just don't be friends with the Doctor. If you see someone in quirky clothing saying, hey, I need to fight an alien slash monster, just turn and go the other way. Just like, nah, nah, I got a life to live. Don't want any of this. <laughs> what do you think then to the death of Jennifer? I mean, it's played very well by Tone, especially. Um, like, manages to kind of get something very real feeling out of the bit when he's holding her in his arms is like, no, I've got so much to show and all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although I think kind of the bit that most people remember is the part afterwards when he makes the whole speech of that he's a man who never would. Kind of that's a yeah. phrase I've heard kind of used to almost encapsulate the Tenth Doctor by some people. Do you feel like yeah. that is kind of an apt phrase to encapsulate what the Tenth Doctor is all about? The man who never would? Or do you think that's just like one part of him? I think that's one part of him. I think he would if he if he came to it. He comes close to it several times, doesn't he? He gets pretty close a number of times to killing people deliberately. I remember well, watching I like... this episode go out and thinking, oh, he's actually going to shoot that guy. And I think that's one of the only times I saw for, oh, Christ, we're getting, you know, the Doctor's... <laughs> we're getting to a point now where th- there is a character development coming in here. And even watching it back, I was sort of thinking, oh, I definitely remember thinking the Doctor was about to shoot that old guy straight through the head. But I feel like, though, if you compare him to, like, other new doctors, like, Eccleston, Smith, and Compaldi have all definitely come much closer to killing people. I mean, Compaldi, like, bloody shoots a Time Lord in Hellbent. Yeah. Yeah, and I could there be. There are moments also say where <laughs> Smith and um, Eccleston very much had intent to kill. Yeah. The Ninth Doctor would have killed that Dalek head race, not stopped him, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a really good scene, there's a really good shot there in that bit where where Jenny gets shot and the Doctor's sort of holding it. It just cuts to a, a, a bunch of half 
who all just like look at each other like really awkwardly, <laughs> just sort of just shuffle away. They're like, oh, this, <laughs> we don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Do you think it's, 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 it's the whole thing? It's like the same thing with like stormtroopers, where when you have those kind of unified costumes, it can be quite easy to make those costumes funny. Yeah, especially with the lack of emotion. Like you look at the Ood in Planet of the Ood, and there's a lot of physical movement going on there with the the, the prosthetics on the face and Sontarans as well. With the half, I don't really re- even remember them blinking. The bubbles go. That's about it. So are you saying that you feel like this is one of the um weaker um monster not really i think it's a really good design but they just don't then it's a really good design i think they look great but i feel um i'd like to see them again but um i don't know i don't really have anything to say about them because we don't learn much about them so did you say they appeared again in the magician's apprentice yeah i imagine in the background or something like that though yeah because i can't i can't remember much of that episode at all no i can't um I found that the ending of this episode to be slightly a rushed conclusion almost. Um, but one thing that the sort thing of caught with, me off... Um, as in the thing with Jenny coming back to life or something else? No, not that. Like before that, like they just suddenly appear in the in the garden room and they're like, oh, here we are. We've solved out the numbers thing and, and um, you know, I'm now going to smash that thing. Everything's great. Oh, wait, no, Jenny's dead. You know, that sort of sequence there seems quite rushed. And one thing that sort of caught my eye was when the doctor's like, oh, she, she'll regenerate, she's part-time Lord, and Martha is, says no. And he sort of goes, yeah, you're probably right. Like, what's he on about? He's the doctor. He, know, he knows this species. She knows what can happen. But Martha's like, nah, not, not happening. And he just sort of just buys it, goes with it. Yeah, but it's right, she isn't. But she does come back to life. And the, she gives out some sort yeah, of regeneration that wasn't, that energy. That was regeneration energy. That was energy from the ball thing. Uh, was it? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, that's why she didn't change her face. But then you I look think. at... It's, you look it's at, a similar effect. But it definitely wasn't regen- a regeneration. Definitely I not. can't remember. But then you look at when he meets Riversong later in the series. He does a lot to save her. And he suddenly just met her. And, you know, he doesn't really know who I she is. That's life, isn't it? But he doesn't really know that, though, does he? I, I just mean, feel like, it seemed out of character for the 10th Doctor not to do anything to try and save Jenny. Whereas when Elton's girlfriend died in Series 2, he brings her back to life as a paving slab. Maybe he's just kind of too overcome emotionally to think straight there. Maybe his connection to her is too strong. What was that? Sorry, you be... disappeared out of... Uh... Sorry. I mean, maybe... I was, just, I was just saying, maybe he's too overcome with emotion this bit. Like, maybe kind of the fact that he has that such a strong bond actually prevents him from being able to think rash, rationally and logically. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Perhaps. Um, I'm all out of notes. No notes. Anything you want to add there, Harry, about the Doctor's Daughter that we haven't spoken about? No, I think we've discussed everything that could possibly be mentioned about this episode. There's nothing inside or out of it uh, that can be said further. That's true. Um, I asked you guys on Instagram what you think of the episode. Um, Doctor Who on Target says, thought this was a setup to a spin off, but the episode itself was poor. Um, Nitpick.who says, really didn't need her own spin off. I'm sorry. That's all right. You didn't get one. And Alicia Oakley, friend of the show, who did the amazing um, avatar artwork for us, 
says, kind of want to know what she's up to now. I would totally watch a spin-off series. And there was a couple more comments as well that um, I don't have time for, unfortunately. But yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Um, when this episode series. ended, yeah, when this episode ended and she whizzes off into space, when it aired, I probably thought there was going to be a spin-off. Before watching this, I sort of thought, uh, maybe it was a bit, you know, maybe we wished a bit too hard for something that wasn't really going to happen. But now watching it again, I sort of think there was such a possibility for something like that. I don't think it would have been a spin-off, but I'm, I would have been su- I'm surprised that she never made a return in the main show as a kind yeah. of recurring Riverside-esque type um, companion. Yeah. Like, they kind of set it up that she could bump back into the Doctor at any point if the Doctor went back to that time period, but they never, they haven't done it yet. Yeah. So it's disappointing though, because I would like to see Jenny Britain. George R. Moffat is amazing as Jenny, and I she's done several big a... finished stuff and yeah. been great. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Um, lots of interesting things there, but how much of it did you remember, Harry? It's time for the quiz! Patience is for wimps. I'm not going to remember. You better not mention one of like the dates on the number plates because I'm not going to know. Question number one. What shape um, scar is left on the doctor's hand after his hand is put into that machine? Oh, it's like a, it's like a line and there's a bit coming out of it, isn't there? What letter would it look like? Like an, it was like an L. Oh, it's a Y. Oh. Jesus Christ. Great start. Great start. What zone does the doctor claim he is from when he's talking to that old military guy? It's a north, south, east, or west? Um, zone south? Eastern. Oh. The doctor tells the general to look up. A uh, to look up genocide, genocide in the dictionary, and he says there will be a picture of himself there with what words printed across it? Something like "Don't you dare!" Over my dead body. Oh right. Okay, so three out of four, not great. Final question: How many numbers appear in the number plate sequences? I'm not. I, I don't. I want to know. When you look at one of those number plates, how many different numbers are on them? You can work this out. Is it ten? It's eight. Ah. Yeah, it is eight. I'm just checking. (laughs) Yeah. Zero out of four there, Harry. That's... Again. That's not much good. What did you think to this episode, then? Did you enjoy it? Because I really enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, it was a fun app. It was a fun app. Series 4, I forget about um, Series 4. I remember a couple of standouts in Series 4, but I often forget about kind of ones like this, even more so than kind of Series 3 episodes. So I'm being Mm. pleasantly surprised quite a bit watching through this one. Yeah, I am as well. Uh, it's that time of the show where we recommend bits and bobs to each other. Before I go, I just want to tell you you were fantastic. Um, oh, I had something to recommend. It's completely gone out of my head. Harry, you can go first this time. 
Oh no, the the same thing happened to me definitely. Um, I did have something to recommend, and I honestly, oh, that's it, that's it. I remember what I want to recommend. Um, recently, um, I finished my second year at university, and I'm currently in limbo situation between. Oh, we, we should probably touch on this on a minute as well. Between moving flats and moving back home and starting work and all this stuff. So I'm in this weird never zone of not really knowing what I'm doing. So I rejoined the gym. Um, I'm not the most physically fit person. I don't do, I tend to do like 40 minutes to an hour's exercise at the gym. I go on a running machine and on the psych, cycle, the bicycle, and I just watch an episode of Family Guy, and then I'll go and watch an episode of The Simpsons. It makes it go a lot quicker because you can enjoy an episode of telly. Um, so that's really what I'm going to recommend is just trying to stay somewhat fit and healthy. If you Maybe the gym isn't necessarily for you. You want to go for a run, listen to some podcasts. But I forgot how much I enjoyed doing gym stuff. It's actually quite fun. And especially this episode isn't sponsored by Pure Gym. But I feel um, for maybe listeners of this podcast students teenagers that sort of thing it's a really good cheap and um, gym 24 hours that sort of stuff and it comes with a great app as well where it tracks your progress and stuff like that so uh, that's what i'd like to recommend is basically trying to do something physically active instead of doing what we do 90 percent of the time which is sitting in front of a computer watching an adipose run around bye and I'm going to recommend something which I'm probably going to be considering the upload schedule. This is going to be coming way, way <laughs> later down the line. So hopefully you've already done it by the time I say it. But uh, I'm going to recommend vaccinations. Um, oh, my first jab. Uh, yeah, earlier this week I got my first jab at the time of recording. Um, and feeling good, feeling great. Um, yeah. I, it's been so long in the waiting and I'm so glad I've got it. I believe every adult, as in everyone 18 or over at the time of recording, is able to get the vaccine now. So yep. nothing to stop you from ringing up and uh, getting yourself sorted. Do you mind me asking you which one you got? I got the Pfizer. I got the Pfizer one. I got it in my right arm. I got it in my right arm as well, because I'm oh. left-handed. Yeah, um... Maybe if people are worried about it, I generally wouldn't be. I sat down next to the doctor and she said, um, which arm would you like it in? I said, oh, just put it in this one. You're sat on this side. And um, I thought she went to, you know, where they sometimes when they take blood or something, they clean the skin just beforehand to not get the needle infected or anything like that. I thought that's what she went to do. And then I was like talking about something about, you know, not living in the area much anymore. And then she went, okay, and here you go, Mr. Saxby. Here's your leaflet. Just go sit up there for 15 minutes. And if you feel a bit doubt, drowsy, just let us know. And I went, oh, have you done it? And she went, yep. Yeah. Generally did yeah. not feel I didn't a thing. realize it had gone in until it came yeah. out. Yeah. And also, like, it sounds like, I know, obviously, um, like, the aftermath differs between people. But for me, like, my arm felt a little sore for a couple of days, and then that was it. Yeah, mine was fine throughout the day. Then I went to work in the evening and I leant up against a door on that arm and my arm, it basically felt, you know when you wear a pyjama top and you roll around a lot in your sleep and it gets really tight and you can't move your arm as much for a little bit and then you untangle your t-shirt? I sort of felt like that. I just felt like I was carrying a bit of extra weight on one arm. But it's been 24 hours plus now since I've had it and it feels fine. It's a little stiff. But it just feels like I've pulled a muscle or something like that. It's nothing mega. 
Um, we probably mentioned it at the top of the podcast and probably mentioned it at the start of this series as well. Um, but this is going to be the last episode for about a month. We're taking a mid-season break uh, for reasons I just mentioned. I'm moving flat and it's just a nightmare trying to record when you're traveling and stuff like that. So um, we will be back. Uh, I, I won't give a date, but it is about a month. Um, there will be videos uploaded to the ch- to YouTube channel. So if you listen to this on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or any other podcast hosting site, and you can listen to, you go over to YouTube and there's some videos coming out there. And also on the podcast feed, there will be some alternative Doctor Who stuff coming out as well. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, but we will be back um, with what, Harry? What episode's next? Which one is it again? It's the Unicorn and the Wasp, right? It is the Unicorn and the Wasp. We'll be back with that in about a month's time. So don't go nowhere. And um, Perhaps if you're new, this is the perfect time to go back and listen to our first three seasons. Um, see the difference in our opinions on Series 1 with Christopher Eccleston compared to now. So that would be great. And I'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening. And uh, do you want to say... You probably won't hear from Harry in a month. So do you want to say bye for a little bit, Harry? Yeah, but if I want to say bye, I want to say, hey, did you know that Georgia Moffat, who plays the Doctor's ah, daughter in this episode, is also the daughter of Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor, which means that she's actually the Doctor's daughter. And also, she then married David Tennant, who plays the tenth Doctor in the episode, making her the Doctor's husband and the Doctor's daughter, and making the, the Doctor the Doctor's godson and the Doctor's godfather. Isn't that crazy? Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. I bet you never heard that before. Make sure you subscribe to the official Bigger on the Inside podcast.